to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan, and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, Pastor of Resonate Church, and Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. So we're going to spend some more time in that first chunk of Isaiah this week, and um, or you did spend some time doing that, uh, and then Mark as well. And so we pick up at a pretty famous scene, which is the call of Isaiah and his sort of experience of the the sort of throne room scene of God. And so, um, yeah, the scene has a language that is quite magnificent and mm-hmm. uh, where they see these burning ones or these seraphims uh, and um, their whole role is to just declare the holiness of God. It seems like, like that's what they do. They fly around and talk about how amazing God is and, and saying, holy, 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 the sort of repetition of this language. And just a reminder that word holy is like this set apartness that, that God is not just the best King. He is just an entirely different kind of King, which is also fascinating that the King dies and Isaiah is basically reminded God's still on the throne. Yeah. Even though Uzziah has died, there's still someone who is reigning. Um, but God is not merely just smarter than any person or stronger than any person or older than any person or better than any person. Like God's measuring is not just on those charts. Like he is completely other than us and completely div- divine. That's what the holy, holy, holy ultimately means. And so um, he's not just a great king. He's a completely other king too. And so um, that's what Isaiah is experiencing. And for Isaiah, I mean, we've had the lesson now for years and years and years that like only this one person ever gets to enter the Holy of Holies once a year after the sprinkling of all this blood. And there's all these ways that that high priest has to cleanse themselves. So for Isaiah to suddenly like be in the presence of God caused him to have, I think, a rightful response to go like, I'm, I'm unclean. Like, I, I shouldn't be here like because of sin, because of brokenness, because of unworthiness. Like I, I should not be here right now, God in your presence. What woe is me in this moment. And, um, and then God does something about it. And through this stone, this piece of rock, that's fiery in some ways, which could represent even judgment. He's cleaned in the process, uh, which I think is so fascinating. Yeah. I, you know, we see, and we've seen this more than once and we'll continue to see that when people have an encounter with God like this, they fall on their face. That's the response. So when you think about what you'll do in heaven or what it would be like to meet God, you're going to fall on your face. You're going to fear him. You're going to see him in his full glory, which will help us to see like our full fallenness and our wickedness. Um, but this this section here and what we're about to read really informs the trajectory of really the rest of Isaiah. Uh, this was Isaiah's encounter with the Lord that gave him the strength to do what he needed to do moving forward. Yeah. And, and throughout this book, we will see just that fine line between God's judgment and how it refines and ultimately cleanses the remnant versus uh, this, this sort of judgment that others experience. And so this fire, this rock of some sort that's so hot that even the seraphim have to grab it with a tongue. Um, it, it's, it could very much be this picture of judgment, mm-hmm. but it's also something that brings about cleansing for Isaiah, which Purifying. will be sort of how God's judgment will work for the remnant as well. Um, and even more so his mouth and he's a prophet. His job is to be a mouthpiece for God. So um, God's almost cleansing his mouth before he commissions him. Right. And so um, it, it seems like either the Lord is sort of asking of the earth or the Trinity is asking of the earth or the Trinity is talking amongst themselves. But either way, Isaiah seems ready to go and eager to basically like he's got his hand up in the front row of the classroom, uh, ready to, to, to volunteer for whatever God needs him to do and to go and do. Um, but then God tells Isaiah 
hey, you're going to go preach to these people, but they're not going to listen to you. And actually, you preaching to them is actually going to cause them to not listen that much more uh, until the cities are empty and destruction, captivity. Like then, then they'll understand. But that's what you're going to go do. So have fun, Isaiah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's it makes sense that Isaiah volunteers after he has this strong interaction with God. But the word that God gives him is really clear, and I think it's still our call as well. Is that um, is that Isaiah's I don't, faithfulness or obedience wasn't measured by change or fruit, but it was by being faithful and obedient to God. And uh, we see in plenty of old like missionary stories that that was their call as well. And so for you, whatever you feel like God has tasked you with or is asking you to do, the question is not always going to be, am I seeing this change? And sometimes it will be, but a lot of times it's going to be, am I being faithful and am I being obedient today to what God has tasked me with? Yeah, there's certainly... Faithfulness is definitely a, a measure. And um, sometimes we'll say like at the end of the, the day, like at the end of God's kind of wrapping up of history, history books are going to be rewritten. And um, history as we know it of who is important and who's not and what really mattered are going to be rewritten in light of God's people who are faithful. And, um, and yeah, and so even though Isaiah might be seen and other major prophets like Jeremiah and other might be seen as fairly unsuccessful in what they were what they accomplished, they were absolutely faithful. And not only that, now we have all their words in our histories. And so, um, yeah. So uh, we jump forward in time a little bit. Uh, Uzziah died. We kind of skip Jotham in history, though we'll jump back to him as we read the histories um, and write to King Ahaz. And King Ahaz has found out that there's the Israel and others are planning to attack Jerusalem and he gets really nervous about it, but God assures Isaiah to speak to them saying this, this won't happen. And here's the message I'm coming with. And he tells him if, if you, if you, if you plural are not firm in faith, then, then y'all will not be firm at all. And it's, it's such a encouraging word that he comes with, but also a challenge uh, to stand firm. Yeah. And I think it's good for us too to remember, you know, we're in this pandemic still right now and it's shown us if nothing else that we are only secure in God. And so if your faith is not firm, nothing's going to be firm. Or if your faith is placed in the wrong thing, it's not going to be firm. So God tells Ahaz to look for this sign, uh, the sign that's going to be confirming some victory. Ahaz doesn't originally want to do it. Isaiah kind of points out that God's kind of frustrated about that, but decides to tell him anyways. And this is also a case of sort of a near and far prophecy, um, because this is certainly a sign that's meant for Ahaz to see and to be encouraged by, that there's going to be this child who's born that's going to be a reminder. It's going to be either literally named or a reminder that God is with them, and then he would have this victory. But um, it also clearly, uh, the New Testament writers see in that text that Jesus is also um, that promised one, the promised Emmanuel, the promised God with us. Um, but this isn't a simple passage. Even Spurgeon said, uh, this is one of the most difficult passages in the word of God. And so, um, sometimes parsing out, all right, who's this for? What are all the pieces? How much of those are fulfilled? It's just not simple. And that's okay. Sometimes we read stuff and it's okay that it's not as simple. Um, but Ahaz is going to know that, um, that in these, in the planning of attacks, um, that the ultimately they're going to have a victory because God's with them again. Yeah, so we see Ahaz being really worked up because he's put his faith in Assyria and not God. Um, it just it makes me think of even Paul's statement about how our troubles right now are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. And they don't feel light and momentary right now, but I think we could all benefit from asking God, 
again, for his eternal perspective, God exists outside of time uh, to see things the way that God does in relation to time. Yeah. And and even though the, the two kings that were planning on attacking Ahaz end up not attacking, which is exactly what God said would happen, we still find out Assyria and Egypt are, are basically going to kind of pinch at uh, um the southern kingdom from the mm. north and the south. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not going to be a land of flowing of milk and honey. It's going to be a land of weed and brambles after they're kind of done with it. Mm. And so uh, he tells Isaiah, God tells Isaiah to go write on a tablet, quick to the spoils, quick to the prey, whatever the longer Hebrew name that I'm not even going to try to pronounce on the podcast. Um, and Isaiah has a child and names the son this name, the quick to the spoils, quick to the prey, which is really what Assyria does to to Israel and to some of Egypt, uh, some of Judah as well. But then we get language around the waters of Shiloh, which I think is an interesting kind of future telling a little bit here. Um, this is a small spring that basically Jerusalem, the city itself, this is their main water source. It's not a giant river or anything like that. It's a simple spring in the city. It's a water source for David's city. And when the Southern kingdom actually gets sieged by Assyria, Hezekiah through some of his infrastructure builds basically water for the city um, tunnels that are still there to this day. You can still walk through Hezekiah's tunnels. Um, and ultimately the South gets spared, but uh, the Northern city, the language there is that there's going to be this rough river that's going to destroy them and, and sort of the Assyrian assault. So instead of the Northern kingdom coming to Jerusalem, which they should have done in the first place, why they even separated it at all was crazy enough, but um coming to Jerusalem and finding respite in the, the temple in the city of God, uh, instead of going there, they're going to stay to the north and this river is going to wipe them out. Yeah, there's some uh, some language in here around people being shattered no matter what. And it's kind of meant also to be a callback to Genesis 3.15, that initial curse of uh, he shall bruise his head and you shall bruise his heel. There is this ultimate conflict between good and evil, but good always wins. Yeah. But beware of the conspiracy theorists, all the people that say they can solve it and are have all their fears and worries. Stay true to God. He's the rock. He's the fortress in the midst of all this. And bind up the law. Stick with that. Uh, I love how Peterson kind of phrases a little bit of that section. He says, when people tell you, try out the fortune tellers, consult the spiritualists. Why not tap into the spirit will? Get in touch with the dead. Tell them, no, we're going to study the scriptures. And so um, I think that's what Isaiah is calling people to. It's like people are going to try to find every solution they can. But Isaiah's call to the people is no, like we stay in God's word. Yeah, it's 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 so simple in some ways to follow Christ. And in other ways, I mean, I know it feels really complicated, but at the end of the day, it's who do you fear and what does that look like? Well, study his word and you can understand. But if we fear God and God alone, um, that's all that's required of us to live lives of faith. And then uh, another passage that um, certainly gets connected to uh, Jesus and is messianic in nature. Uh, the people are, that are suffering in anguish are going to have hope um, that God has condemned uh, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the future, this, this northern region, this Galilee region is going to be made great. And so um, the people who are in darkness will see a great light, destroy the powers that oppress people. This holy child will be born um, and he'll be called a prince of peace to rule over and like war and violence will vanish. He'll be righteous and God's going to accomplish all this. So yes, like, this is Jesus. And some have pointed to Hezekiah and others, but but there's so much broadness to this and stuff that never 
can get identified with Hezekiah. Like, I, I think this is a language that absolutely was Isaiah saying, because this isn't a, just a sign to Ahaz. This is blanket future telling of there will be a Holy One born who will finally usher in this time of peace that we'll never experience anywhere other other than this this final person. And so, um, yeah. You'll see a lot of these kind of promises towards Emmanuel and Christ in Isaiah. And we we read it at Christmas and we think about what it means on this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But I'd encourage you as you read it, just put yourself in the shoes of these people who are reading it back then just for a moment and think of the hope that it would stir in them uh, to anticipate this coming Messiah who's going to make all things right when they haven't seen it fulfilled yet like we have. Yep. But uh, and then we get the section that's pretty image rich and Isaiah reminds the people multiple times in the section that God's pretty angry about stuff. And he points to the flaws in leadership, uh, the culpability of the people who followed these awful leaders. Um, their wickedness is almost described as like an out of control force fighter and that God comes along and fans those flames in a way that ends up burning up the people in the process. And um, although everyone's trying to satisfy their desires and appetites, they're just like they're eating up their own family members. And so there's just this rich imagery, this cannibalistic or forest fire, all these kind of language. Uh, and, and it's pointing out, uh, and, and God directly condemns in this section, those who oppress, who practice injustice, who rob the poor orphan and widow. Um, it's just, it's a rich section of condemnation, I think, and imagery. <laughs> Yeah, it seems that the source of this behavior is pride. It's their pride that led them to showing uh, this end is going to be either captivity or death. And it's their pride that caused them to mistreat the vulnerable. And so at the end of the day, God is saying, all right, well, watch your pride save you now. It's not going to. Yeah. And the Assyrians who are coming, God almost reminds the people like this isn't haphazard. Like I am orchestrating this, this, they are being the tool of the punishment for on like, they are the tool I'm using to punish you. But God also reminds them the Assyrians are also awful and will be dealt with as well. Um, like the fire is God's coming. There won't be much left after it's done, but don't worry. Assyria will reach experience judgment as well. Yeah. Again, a reminder, like we see all the time that God uses all people for his plans and purposes, whether they're willing or unwilling. Yeah. So that, that's promised and, and sort of they continue this image of like a chopping down a forest, chopping down trees and and all this is coming as part of the Assyrian the, the return. But the remnant, this remnant in Israel will still return after this. Yeah. I think the judgment that will cause the remnant of Israel to turn back to the Lord, or this judgment will cause the remnant of Israel to turn back to the Lord. And we see the end of Assyria's reign being contrasted with Israel returning to the Lord. And I just love this idea of destruction being decreed and it overflowing with righteousness. We oftentimes see those ideas as so um, separate from one another, but God works it out in a way that they are connected. And there's a promised one coming out of the the line, the shoot, or the bud, whatever it may be, of Jesse, which immediately for these people, I mean, that's connected to David or someone like David who's going to be coming. Um, this this far future scope to Isaiah that's filled in Jesus that this person will have the spirit full of knowledge, wisdom, power, judge righteously, even giving the poor and the meek their fair judgments, which hasn't been happening at all in Israel or Judah. The, his words are going to be like weapons that destroy and, and righteousness. Righteousness, he will have like a belt. His kingdom will be peaceable. Death will end. All the nations, all the animals will lay down to each other. Like there's such a rich mm -hmm. future to orient a thing that um, Jews and Christians alike certainly did not connect it to anything that happened during Isaiah's time. That this is a future uh, idea that's coming and that we certainly see in Jesus, or at least partially fulfilled in Jesus. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful 
kind of future telling of, of what's going to come. Yeah, and there's a verse, verse 10, that Paul actually uses in Romans 15 to describe his ambition to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. I just think it's really cool that Paul's heart to bring the gospel to the Gentiles came out of the Old Testament. In verse 13 to 16, kind of goes back to some of the stuff that's happening immediately where they're, Judah and Ephraim are going to stop fighting. We'll go back and attack the Philistines and uh, other groups will, are going to feel the judgment too, but are going to ultimately bow down to God in the end. So um, all this, and then the roads will be made right for through Egypt and through Assyria for the people to return to Israel. It's still that, that promised hope that exists constantly it's like this background noise to isaiah as he talks about his judgments to say no but that's not the final story and there's still going to be hope and there's still going to be a return Mm -hmm. so mark uh 12 to 14 we start with this conversation about paying taxes to caesar and i love it that all the gospel writers are really good to clue us in of who is present um because now that they're in the temple um the 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 people in power really at the temple are Sadducees, the priests and the scribes. Um, but we get identified in two different groups here, the Pharisees, who probably don't go down to Jerusalem a lot other than the things you have to go to, um, the Pharisees and the Herodians. These Pharisees are separatists from the north. They want nothing to do with Rome or Hellenism, which is like Greek foreign influence. And they want strict Torah observance. They, they separate clean and unclean in like the most, the ways that, uh, lead to their legalism, but but are they, they would balk at the idea that they would pay taxes to Rome. And then the Herodians, who are Hellenistic, they are Greek influenced. They don't mind the trappings of Rome and Greece as long as it benefits them. They don't mind Herod, who's ruling and has been in cahoots with Rome. Um, they're more than happy to pay taxes to to Rome. And so for them to kind of get together, these two groups that probably don't get along very well, but both don't have much appreciation for Jesus and then ask this question. It's such a loaded question in this moment. These two groups like absolutely would answer this completely different. And Jesus, Jesus's answer publicly could ultimately lead to him losing some of his followers from one side or the other, if they lean certain ways, but Jesus being brilliant, just, just circumvents the question basically asks whose inscriptions on this coin and whose inscription on you, which the coin would have had the face of Caesar on it. And not only that, but said something like Caesar's Lord on the back. And so, I think Jesus is pointing out, like, look, give Caesar his own idolatrous little coin. Like, it's totally fine. But whose image on you is God's image on you. Like, you were created in his image. And so don't you dare give him your worship yourself. Like, you are God's image. You are his. So worship him. Don't pledge allegiance to any other kingdom than God's. Give, Give Caesar his worthless little coin. Yeah. This comes from the beginning. It comes from creation. We are the Imago Dei, and we were created by God, and we were created for a purpose. And we will be our most flourishing selves when we live out of that identity. And then Sadducees come along who um, don't have much of a notion of resurrection uh, just because of how they read uh, the Torah and nothing else for the most part. And so they're trying to trap Jesus into some crazy hypothetical situation where this one guy gets remarried a bunch of times. And Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He just completely avoids it. And he's sort of like, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, which is great. Like their job is to study the scriptures. Yeah. And not only that, but to be part of the temple, which they would understand as the power of God. He's like, you don't really know what God's about. And then Jesus uses the Torah to kind of show them an argument for God's eternal nature. Like that, that God doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like they're dead. Like I I am like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not long gone. Like there's a, there's an eternality to them being um, alive in some way. And so, yeah, Jesus is just brilliant to use the Torah to basically argue uh, against uh, these people. 
Who are, yeah, like professional tourist studiers. <laughs> and I think it's a lesson and a reminder that following and understanding and obeying God is is a posture of the heart as well as a mental activity. But you can spend your whole life studying the Bible um, and miss the heart of it. Yeah, which really gets into the whole next conversation. Yeah. It's like, have, have, like these Pharisees, the, the rabbis, the, 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 the scribes, I mean, they all know the word of God perfectly in, in a lot of ways. Like they have it memorized. They have debates around this all, all the time. And even the debate of what's the greatest commandment was an ongoing debate. And you even had two large schools that answer that. But Jesus ultimately ups the ante even, even in, in light of, of these answers to basically be like, look, <clears throat> If, if, if the end goal is not lead for you to not only love God, uh, which was always the first part of the, the greatest commandment, but, but to love others, like that is, that is the goal. Like if you, if you read all that God has revealed to us and it doesn't spur you to love God and to love others, then you've missed the point of so many of the teachings and commandments in scripture. Yeah. I think, you know, the other thing we see here is that, All of these arguments about loving others and loving God come from the Old Testament. So often, so many people who grew up were told, we'll just ignore the God of the Old Testament. He's not the same as the God of the New Testament. And that's just really not true. Mm -mm. All of the arguments we read for loving neighbors and caring for people come originally from the Old Testament. I heard, I can't remember who it was, but they said something like, I like the New Testament because it reminds me so much of the Old Testament. Like it is the (laughs) same God. And so we see Jesus arguing for all of these really powerful um, love conviction, sacrificially driven behaviors that are all stemmed out of the Old Testament. Yeah. And then Jesus basically goes on the offensive here and kind of blows their mind around this interpretive problem that has always existed for them that, all right, there's one coming from David. It's going to be David's son, but he's also going to be Lord. And I don't know how to make that math work. And Jesus is like, well, here's how it works. The one who was promised from David is also God. And that's how it's going to work. So um, if if you're saying that I'm Messiah, like that's what I am. And and that's what we've been talking about. This isn't new. This isn't a new idea that the Messiah from David is going to also be God. And like you may not have understood this verse till now, but this is this has been what it's been pointing to. Yeah. And so uh, Jesus gives some warning about these, these scribes, these in authority, who seem to love their authority, who have this pretense of great spirituality. They got long prayers. People would have looked up to them as authority and, and prayerful. But Jesus says, watch out for them, because although they have all those things, like they don't take care of the marginalized. Like they oppress widows. They, they, they do these things like they're inconsistent. And, and the very thing that he just said, like your if your interpretation of scripture does not lead you to love God and to love others, be careful of them. Mm-hmm. Be careful of what they're teaching. And uh, speaking of widows, he, yeah, he this is, it's strategically placed stories here. Yeah, and and so all these people that that all the authorities that exist in this time that Jesus is interacting with, and like Jesus is bringing that crowd down in some ways. And who does he choose to highlight in the middle of the temple where everybody can see who does he highlight this, this widow who has little to nothing. It's not, it's, it, it, she, she gives what she can and Jesus highlights her as a central character and, and as a example of faith. I love how Peterson even talked about this uh, in his translation. The, the truth is that the poor widow gave more to the collection than all the others put together. All the others gave what they'll never miss, but she gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford and she gave her all. And I think that's, that's a central part of the, the kind of teaching here is, is Jesus calling people to, 
to 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 give up for him, to sacrifice, to be willing to 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 pursue him no matter what it costs. Yeah. Authentic faith is always modeled by what we do. And so we need to step back after reading this story and pray and ask the Lord if there's anything we are withholding from him. It could be finances or it could be dreams or plans or our children. This widow is honored here because she exercised dependence on God through her physical actions, not just her prayers and her statements. Yeah. And then we get, uh, I mean, I feel like I'm circling up on this again from Matthew. But this foretelling of destruction of the temple, I mean, Jesus kind of is on his way out. The disciples are like, wow, look how awesome this building is. And Jesus is like, well, this building's coming down. It's going to be destroyed. And um, and this ends up happening within 40 years of, of Jesus's time. And so um, I don't know if Jesus is using his total omniscience or he's just able to read like his Old Testament really well to go, all right, God has done this before. And whenever we end up with an Israel that's built upon the backs of the poor, the marginalized, the orphan, the widow, God ultimately does show up and bring, bring some judgment. And so Jesus might be just going, this is going to be torn down someday. I don't know when, but it's going to be torn down someday. And then the disciples start asking like, when are these things going to happen? Mm-hmm. And and the text here is a, to answer to the question of when is the temple going to, the stone's going to be thrown down and the temple destroyed. And not only that, but they've gone to the, to the other side, looking at the temple when these, these conversation happens. And so uh, I think Jesus reminds them about all these things that are coming. Like there's going to be other messiahs who comes, which happened in history. There's going to be other wars, which there's plenty of, of in Jesus's time. And immediately after there's going to be earthquakes, which we have histories of happening around this time. And during all these things, they're like birth pains and there's going to be persecution of the disciples and, and it's not going to be pretty. And there's going to be family against family. And they're going to turn family members in and, and this is very direct language to the disciples. Actually, Jesus caps off this whole section by finishing and saying, all these things will happen within this generation. And so um, he's reminding them, like, look, like me setting up shop as Messiah is not about me military over Jer- Jerusalem, but me ultimately being the Messiah that he's going to be. It's not a promise of, of security and comfort that persecution and struggle and judgment on, on Israel is actually going to be coming. You know, he uses a reference to Daniel nine with this abomination of desolation. And, and it's, it's that, that language was used when the temple fell kind of in the period where we don't read between the old and the new Testament. But I think it's used again when the temple falls uh, again, like this is coming and, and, and others may say, here's how you can be saved. Here's a solution, but don't believe them. Like God, God won't destroy the home there. I'm meant to flee, get out of town, head to the Judean Hills. And I know I'm plowing through each section, but they're kind of all connected. And so this, this distress in the heavens, this shaking, this judgment that's going to be happening, like all this happens, the son of man will be vindicated. And I just want to remind you of that, that Daniel passage, the coming of the son of man is not about the son of man coming back to earth. It's about the coming of the son of man to the ancient of days, taking his position as the ruler and the ultimate judge of all things. And what Jesus is pointing out, this persecution, destruction of the temple, all that's happening will just be vindication, truth that the son of man truly was what he said he was. And he's reigning now over, over from the heavens, over all peoples. And, and he's starting to draw the Gentiles from the four corners of the earth, which is 
what happened in the life of the early church. And so Jesus was prophet after prophet after prophet in this. And all those prophets' main messages are about perseverance for the remnant. And so this is such an encouragement mm-hmm. to disciples of going, persevere, persevere. It's going to be hard. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be all sorts of craziness. Persevere through it all. Learn the lesson of the fig tree. Like when the things start budding, when, when, there's, when there's a sign that things are about to happen, know that they're there. Stay alert. Like this will happen in your generation. And my words are true. No matter how much upheaval the world has, my words will not be upheaved. So when will the temple be destroyed? I don't know. I can't give you a specific date or time. Just stay alert. Be ready because you never know. So be ready for what God may have and know that this isn't going to be hunky-dory. It's going to be comfortable and pleasant, but persevere. Yeah, I think that's some of that idea of perseverance is connected to what we talked about before and understanding God's timeline, God's patience, um, and God's judgment, even like we talked about in Isaiah. And I just, I think it's really interesting to think about the audience reading. I mean, we think Mark was written in the mid 60s and the temple was destroyed and it was either 70 or 72. Yeah. Yeah, um, And so it's not happening yet, but it's imminent. But the instruction is not to spend a ton of time speculating on what or when or how, but he says, you know, hold fast to what you you know is true. Hold fast to this faith. Stand, you know, you're either firm in your faith or you're not firm at all. And so even the instruction that we can take home in this is to when things are easy or when they're hard or when they're predictable or they're entirely unpredictable, what we get to do is we get to trust God's hand in all things and rest in his sovereign control. And, and hear me, I, I know people disagree on how to interpret this chapter. Um, and, and we're going to deal with revelation and we'll deal with some of the ways that some of this imagery gets picked up again, stuff like that. But, um, given the context of what Jesus is talking about, when he's talking about it, who he's talking about in it, and it's got some of the phrases, um, I just tend to fall into that conviction that, that a lot of what Jesus is pointing out is something that more happened in 70 AD. And we shouldn't necessarily try to apply all these little signs and figures to, some of the modern ways we interpret the, the times. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, anyways. So there's a plot to kill Jesus. Yeah. And and the chief priests and scribes are trying not to actually kill Jesus during Passover week, which shows you just how much control Jesus has over the timing of his death. Um, that, that, yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah. Proverbs 14. Yeah, so we see, again, a lot of examples and pictures of what it looks like to be a person of wisdom. And again, we remember that starts with fearing God. But part of wisdom is understanding that we are in the long game and that flourishing will eventually come, even if it's not immediate. Wisdom looks like working hard. It looks like generosity. It looks like fearing God, and it looks like being slow to anger. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely multiple verses around the hot-headedness or ill-temperedness, but that there's a, a heart of peace that gives life to the body. I think that's so so great. It's such a good picture. Um, and, and yeah, and, and there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. And um, I think Jesus is even warning about that in some of his, his teaching there of going like, look, there's going to be plenty of messiahs who come along who teach you like this seems right and this seems this, but it's going to lead to death. And so stick with what God knows, or even, even that Isaiah passage of uh, where I quoted Andrew, or uh, not Andrew Peterson, Eugene Peterson translating it. It's, it's sort of like, look, there's people who are going to go to find answers through divination and spiritualism and all this kind of stuff, but stick to the word, stick to what is true. 
All right, next week, what should we look out for? So in the Old Testament, we are finally going to read about the fall of Israel to the Assyrians. This is a really big deal. Um, I didn't know about the divided kingdom or the falls or exile or anything for a long time in my faith, but this is something we have been talking about and building up to. So pay attention to it happening. Um, and in the New Testament, I'd say just to continue to, to watch and pay attention to these patterns of discipleship failure, denying Jesus, fleeing betrayal, we, we see kind of two storylines happening at the same, and one is following the story of the disciples, and, um, and they don't show up very well, but there is a purpose to that being included as well. Yeah, uh, this one almost feels a little out of the Bible, um, but we're going to be jumping around histories. And so just try to keep up with exactly what's happening when um, I understand <laughs> Impossible. that. Like, Impossible. We, we just can't. Yeah, it would be hard to like just do like the one individual story and then the next individual story and jump around from Kings and Chronicles. So we do it in chunks. So we will jump back a little bit. So we'll go back to Jotham a little bit and stuff like that. So uh, just try to keep the the linearness in your brain as best you can. Uh, and then the New Testament, um, it helps to still have some of these contexts. Like trials are not allowed to happen during Passover or at night. Uh, judgments aren't allowed to happen within 24 hours. You are certainly not allowed to bring false witnesses to testify. Like all of this is not okay. And there's so much about what happens in that in that trial leading up to Jesus's death. That was either a straight up break of Torah law or the oral laws. And so as a listener, you should be reading this and being like, this is some shady co-opted version of, of trying to pin something on Jesus. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's nothing above board that's really happening in the story, uh, with, with the, the trial that Jesus experienced. So as you read that, like you should feel that of feeling like this is shady. This isn't right. There's nothing, there's nothing right about this. These are all the people breaking their own laws and traditions that they're so proclaimed to uphold. So, uh, but we'll deal with that as we get there next week. Thanks y'all. Thank you. Thank you.